Welcome to Ergasia, a podcast of work, faith, theology, and economics, arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. And welcome to Ergasia. My name is Brendan Byrne, and I have the pleasure of being your host. In this episode, we begin an exploration of the book Hard Work Never Killed Anyone How the Idolization of Work Sustains This Deadly Lie by John Bottomley, published by Morningstar Press in 2015. Bottomley is a retired minister of the Uniting Church in Australia and was formerly director of the Creative Ministries Network, a UCA agency that for over 30 years conducted research into work-related harm. Over the course of its existence, the CMN developed a program of companioning pastoral care to support the families of workers killed in industrial accidents, and which also enabled the expression of work-related grief and trauma through artistic projects in various media. For the sake of transparency, I would like to declare at this point that John Bottomley is not only a ministerial colleague in the Uniting Church in Australia, he is also a personal friend whom I regard as a mentor in the realm of work and faith. I would like to make it clear that I have chosen to explore Bottomley's book not because I want to either advertise or endorse it, but because I think it does two important things. Firstly, it articulates the experiences of a minister who has been deeply engaged in the world of work and who therefore has important insights for both the church and wider society derived from this experience. Secondly, because Bottomley speaks with a prophetic voice, one that both highlights the inconvenient truths we would often rather remain unspoken, but who also speaks a word of hope that goes directly to the heart of human experience. It is for these reasons and none other that I have chosen to use this podcast to explore Bottomley's book, and apart from advising him of the fact that I intend to do so, there has been no correspondence between us regarding the editorial content of the episodes that will deal with his book. So with that little disclaimer out of the way, let us begin. This is Ergasia episode 19, Hard Work Never Killed Anyone, part 1, Subduing Death, Modernity's Heroic Intent. Bottomley begins by recounting an event that took place early in his ministry when he was in placement in a congregation in the outer eastern suburbs of Melbourne. As a minister, it was naturally expected that he would provide support to bereaved families upon the death of a family member. 
Yet on one occasion when Bottomley tried to provide support to a grieving couple whose child had died, he discovered that only the mother was at home to receive his visit. The father was away at work, its demands upon him effectively rendering any support Bottomley might offer completely redundant. At the time, Bottomley thought little about this incident, but a few years later when he was engaged to undertake research within an industrial context, this incident and its consequences prompted the realisation that modernity's construction of work and the beliefs about work by which this construction is supported leave little room for the expression of grief in human life. Time and again, workers confided in Bottomley that they felt they could not speak openly about grief at work for fear of the consequences. The culture of the workplace was that grief was to be confined to the private world of the home and family, rendering any public expression strictly taboo. Bottomley began to wonder what were the fundamental beliefs about work that not only couraged but essentially mandated this harmful division in human life. This in turn led him to consider what were the foundational assumptions that helped shape the world view of modern society. Bottomley argues that modernity is a phrase that summarises the emergence of three critical developments over the last few hundred years, developments that have set the foundations for society's prevailing beliefs about work and economy. The first of these developments is the so-called scientific revolution, which carried with it the promise that humanity could learn all the secrets of nature and accordingly dispense with religious belief and other forms of superstition. The second development was the privileging which the emergence of the scientific method gave to the acquisition of objective facts over the realm of human feelings, locating facts in the rational public world of science while relegating emotions and their associated beliefs to the private world of home and family. The third development was the worldview which emerged from the development of the scientific method, namely that reason working off facts was better able to explain human affairs than religious cosmologies. Belief in God's providence as an active force in human affairs was replaced by the belief that human reason alone was sufficient to ensure humanity's progress. The upshot of these assertions was the belief that humanity could apply scientific developments for the purposes of firstly unlocking all the secrets of nature and then, armed with such knowledge, subdue the natural world for the benefit of humankind. Modernity is thus characterised by the belief that the messiness of human life can be controlled or even eradicated by the application of reason. One such example was the application of this worldview to the means of production in order to create an economy in which autonomous individuals could inevitably progress towards a wealthy and harmonious society. However, this in turn required the complete commitment of individuals to their work in order to ensure the all-encompassing goal of personal and social progress was achieved. In other words, work became the integrative matrix 
through which all values, ideas and norms were assimilated, in order to develop a belief system that placed work at the heart of what it means to be a legitimate and authentic human being. At this point Bottomley makes a small diversion to explain the meaning and significance of ideology to this historical process. Drawing on the work of the French philosopher Louis Althusser, Bottomley defines ideology as a paradigm that seeks to render reality immune to critique by creating the belief that the world which individuals experience is both inevitable and universal. In other words, that the world as we know it was always going to be the way it is, and that the fundamental correctness of the status quo is understood and accepted by all rational people. Crucial to the maintenance of this belief is the capacity of those who benefit from the status quo to discourage or dissuade critical or alternate perspectives by all available means, up to and including the use of violence. The point being that the belief system of modernity has acted ideologically throughout recent history in order to become the prevailing paradigm through which we view the world. Critical to this belief system and its claims about the inevitability and necessity of modernity's construction of work and economy is the notion of hard work, for it is only in hard work that the promised future can come about. The upshot of this historical process and its ideological basis is that the ideology of modernity believes that it is possible to overcome the reality of disease, death and grief, and that these have in fact been largely subdued in various spheres of human activity, especially in the world of work. Work is a realm of achievement and success. It is the primary means through which humanity both expresses the triumph of human reason and asserts its legitimacy and authority. Death, the ultimate negation, and grief, our recognition of that negation, have no place in the triumphalist world of work, especially because both point directly to the fallacy of modernity's project to subdue death. But how has the ideology of hard work and the quarantining of work from the reality of death and grief been sustained in recent times? Bottomley begins his quest to answer this question by focusing on studies conducted in the 1950s into company lost time, accident and personal data records, which concluded that industrial accidents were at least partially a means by which workers withdrew their labour. This conclusion was reached by reading psychoanalytic theory back into company data. That is to say, the study authors reached psychological conclusions about injured workers based on data from other clinical contexts without reference to the actual experience of the injured workers themselves. For those conducting this research, the meaning of workplace injury was located in their belief that workers were autonomous agents who acted on their own initiative to withdraw their labour through the mechanism of workplace accidents. These assumptions blinded the researchers to the harm that was being done to the workers who were the subjects of their studies, and also reinforced the ideology of hard work by demonising shirkers 
who were prepared to injure themselves in order to not work. Bottomley then moved to the report of a United Kingdom Parliamentary Committee published in 1972, which recommended a new approach to occupational health and safety. The recommendations contained in this report ultimately became the basis for OHS legislation in every Australian jurisdiction by the mid-1990s. Under these laws, a self-regulating system involving company-level participation by employers and employees was created, overseen by an integrated state authority whose mandate was to ensure risks to workers' health and safety were properly managed. The assumption behind the original UK Parliamentary Committee report, which was enshrined in the Australian legislation, was that the system it created would empower employee voices and enable workers to have a meaningful say in the management of workplace health and safety. Unfortunately, this assumption made no account of the imbalance in power between employees and employers and simply assumed that a legislated right to consultation would be sufficient to protect workers' interests. In other words, the legislation was an expression of modernity's assumptions about the power of autonomous individuals and gave no thought to the realities of power relations between different groups in society. In the same instance, it effectively silenced those outside the workforce, such as the family of a worker injured or killed in a workplace accident, who were nonetheless directly affected by the structures and processes of work. Finally, Bottomley analyses an assertion made by the Australian National Heart Foundation in the early 2000s that there was no scientific evidence for a causal relationship between work-related stressors and trauma and coronary heart disease. But the ideological basis of this claim was demonstrated by the subsequent revelation that the chairman of the panel which undertook the relevant research for the foundation made an opening statement to the panel in which he declared that there was no evidence for a link between job stress and heart disease and never would be. In other words, before the panel had even begun its work, its chairman was asserting the ideological separation of the world of work from the reality of human illness and suffering by claiming to have prior knowledge of a universal and unchangeable reality this example of scientific dogmatism presents the world of work as a taken-for-granted reality immune to critique. But the work of subsequent researchers, who were able to identify the contrary voices discernible in the data, demonstrated the falsity of both the claim and its ideological foundations. This was an example in which ideology in the guise of science moved the source of heart disease from work-related factors to so-called lifestyle factors such as diet, smoking and exercise. Bottomley argues that these three examples demonstrate how the ideology of work has shaped modernity's construction of the workplace in order to quarantine work from the reality of injury, illness and death. This ideology has constructed an imaginary relationship between individuals and their experience of work 
in order to preserve the established order from the criticism that its construction of work may be a source of harm and injustice. Reality is distorted by ideology in order to maintain the status quo, to blind workers to the harm caused by their work, and to render invisible the suffering experienced by injured workers and the families of those who have been killed at work. Having identified the ideological structures that attempt to remove the world of work from the reality of death, Bottomley then turns to the question of grief, and how modernity's construction of work likewise seeks to silence the voices of those who grieve. This occurs through the prevailing belief that grief is a private matter that has no place in the public realm, including the realm of work. So pervasive is this belief that in the century or so since Freud, grief researchers have concentrated on grief as a private expression confined to home and family, reinforcing the notion that it is only within this realm that grief is appropriately expressed and responded to. This was despite the fact that many grief researchers recognized that the continuing bonds of memory and association mean that a relationship can continue even after death, and that successful negotiation of the grieving process does not involve withdrawing emotional attachment to the deceased. Yet despite this recognition, researchers and clinicians continue to respond to grief as though it was an individual task of adaption to bereavement, reinforcing the privatization of grief as mandated by modernity's ideology of work. The point here is that how we respond to and make meaning of the reality of death does not occur in a vacuum. The privatization and medicalization of grief means that the plethora of available therapeutic approaches and competing healing models, combined with the prevailing ideology of work, serves to marginalize an individual's expression of grief, frequently labeling grief-related behaviors in negative terms, and setting the experience of grief at odds with those values and behaviors which modernity's construction of work determines are appropriate and legitimate. In other words, grief itself becomes a compliance issue. The individual either comports themselves in those ways which the ideology of work determines are normal, or the griever is pathologized and regarded as abnormal or unreliable until such time as their behavior returns to the required paradigm. Thus it can be seen that despite over a century of detailed study, the focus by grief researchers on the individualization of grief is actually complicit with modernity's ideology of work and the heroic autonomous individual, adding scientific legitimacy to the idea that the status quo is both reasonable and inevitable and that it is individuals who need to change and not the paradigm of work in which they find themselves. From the proceeding, it may be concluded that modernity's ideology of work is both overwhelming and incontestable. However, Bottomley argues that his own experience suggests that an alternative reality is possible, one that opens people to the reality of illness, death and grief, 
in a way that contests and overcomes the harmful self-division which the privatization of grief has caused. This insight occurred through Bottomley's experience of parish ministry and his own sense of being ill-equipped to deal with the realities of illness and death, despite the formation he had undergone in theological college, and despite also the expectations placed upon him as a minister by his congregation. This experience opened Bottomley to the fact that the tools with which he had been equipped to conduct funerals and related services had also created the illusion that his role as a minister had provided him with a measure of control over death. This illusion itself was an expression of the traditional masculinity in which he had been formed, one that viewed his subsequent sense of ill-preparedness as weakness, the enemy of his rationality that needed to be banished from his work as a minister. This experience prompted Bottomley to renew his exploration of the Christian narrative, and once he did so he discovered a counter-voice that didn't pathologize his feelings, but which instead saw his unease as a point of entry into the love and forgiveness embodied in Christ. This discovery ran strongly counter to modernity's narrative of the heroic individual, a narrative that views life as characterized by access to truth through scientific fact-gathering, which in turn enables freedom from the superstition of belief in supernatural powers. In this narrative, the legitimate and genuine person confines feelings and beliefs to the private sphere, never allowing them to venture into the public realm of work. But it was while working as a researcher in a dockyard that the counter-narrative which Bottomley had discovered in his renewed exploration of Christian faith entered his working life and established the connection between public grief and his own experience of sorrow. This connection emerges from the prophetic tradition of the Hebrew Scriptures, in which God's desire to hold the private and public realms together in a cohesion of mercy and justice is fully articulated. Grief in this context becomes a public lament which names what is unjust in the structures of society and which challenges the ideological narratives underpinning that injustice. Bottomley had thus come to understand lament as a distinctly public act, one that could never be excluded by the claims of other powers or ideologies within society. In modernity, this lament protests the dehumanizing ideology of work and seeks the justice that is demanded by God's call to life-giving love. Such a lament is intensely personal and open-hearted because these are the necessary characteristics of any genuinely prophetic witness to the transformative possibilities of God's justice and love. But it also makes grief lamented in a prophetic voice political, precisely because its purpose is to expose the harm hidden within the illusions created by modernity's construction of work, and because its intent is to bring about a world transformed out of suffering into the reality of God's grace. All of this can be frighteningly problematic for individuals and communities 
immersed in modernity's construction of rationality, which divides the world and our lives into dissociated realms of public and private. But the prophetic imagination challenges the assumptions of our cultural formation and the complicity of our institutions, including the church, with modernity's ideology of work and its associated claims about human legitimacy. Grief, expressed as public prophetic lament, also becomes a sign of God's judgment on the dehumanizing spirit operating within modernity's construction of work and economy, a judgment that both liberates us from the ideology of work and which enables us to discern a rehumanizing alternative. For it is in the silence about work's dehumanizing spirit, a silence sanctioned by the ideology of work, that we can nonetheless discern a clue about the real relationship between work and humanity, precisely because that silence discloses what is hidden within modernity's claims about individual and social progress, work and society. And it is to an exploration of that society that we will turn in the next episode. So, with that promised exploration ahead of us, that's where we leave today's episode of Ergasia. In the meantime, to leave your thoughts about this podcast or to offer any suggestions or ideas for future subjects, please go to the webpage at www.ergasia.podbean.com or go to the podcast pages on Facebook and Twitter. I hope to have the pleasure of your company for the next episode. I am your host, Brendan Byrne. Goodbye for now. You have been listening to Ergasia, a podcast of faith, work, theology and economics arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. For more information, please go to www.ergasia.podbean.com.